please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for March 24th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today is Philip Bump, who is a national columnist for the Washington Post. He focuses on the data behind polls and political rhetoric, as well as writing a weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart. His first book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, looks at the overlap of the end of the baby boom and the upheaval in American politics and U.S. economy. He writes, We are in a moment in politics and in culture that has never before existed. The most powerful country in the world is undergoing an enormous generational shift that overlaps with the invention of tools that allow individuals to band together with and talk to anyone else. It's a moment of self-awareness. We see our national power being challenged and we see our internal divisions widening. But we also know that we've weathered unsteady moments before, even outright division, even violent conflicts over race and status. What we can say with the most certainty is that the America into which the baby boomers were born is long gone, and that the America they built is crumbling. The uncertainty is whether that America is replaced by ashes or once again a phoenix. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Philip Bump. Thanks for joining us today. Of course, my pleasure. Philip, your book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, takes a deep look at the historic and ongoing impacts of the population surge after World War II, popularly known as the baby boom, and how, as that cohort is aging, power dynamics are changing. And you are especially adept at using numerical analysis to support your observations. So let's begin with some numbers. Remind us when this boom began and some of the numbers involved. Sure. So the boom began, according to the Census Bureau, in the year 1946, so immediately the year following the end of World War II. It didn't actually start at the beginning of January, according to the Census Bureau. The, the demographic shift, which was the surge and burst, actually began about the middle of the year. We tend to just think of the boom as starting in 46, ending in 1964, and we tend to refer to anyone born in those calendar years as being baby boomers. So when we look at it that way, we can see the scale of the boom. If we just consider that definition, anyone born in that time period, We can compare it to the population of the country in 1945. So in 1945, as World War II was ending, there were about 140 million people living in the United States. Over the course of the next 19 years, during that boom period, another 76 million, almost 76 million babies were born. And so you can see immediately, that's a huge surge. It's more than 50% of the entire population of the country is then born over the course of the next 19 years. And then, of course, you just consider what that means, how that affects things, how that reshape things. It's not simply that you have all these people. You have a very specific age range of people who are now introduced to the country and moving through the United States population collectively and forcing the country over time to continue to adapt as they grow older and as their needs change. Some of our listeners, including myself, are in that cohort. I was born in 1951. I began my education at a Catholic school in 1957 as a first grader. And my class was a group of 60 young students. And I knew that was way too many. 
But I just always assumed, oh, that's just how Catholic education is. And so it was a revelation for me in your book to get it. No, that probably was not Catholic education. That was just there were not enough schools. Talk a bit about some of the ramifications of how ill-prepared our country was for this surge in population. That's exactly right. So, I mean, if you think about what that means, when you think about the fact that you have this massive surge, millions of births each year, a huge increase in that, all of a sudden you do need to start thinking about, you know, do we have enough schools? Not only do we have enough schools, but do we have enough teachers? So, you saw this huge boom in the building of schools. Los Angeles County was adding a, an average of one elementary, middle, or high school every single month over the course of the baby boom. And you you consider what that accommodation means over the long term, right? So it's not just 1951, they start turning five years old, you have to accommodate them in kindergartens. But then, of course, they hit the age of 13 or whatever it is, and they start having to go to middle school, then they have to start going to high school. Then, of course, they hit 18, they start graduating from high school. Do we have enough universities? If you're considering sending a lot more people to university, you need a different standard of education. I mean, obviously, by that point, you've had two decades nearly of the baby boom to prepare for. But if you're hiring college professors, that's, that's a different ball game than hiring first grade teachers, for example. If you are looking at the labor force, are there enough jobs to accommodate people? It is absolutely the case that the draft for the Vietnam War was a function to a large extent of having a lot of young people around. And that made it possible to be able to take some of them and, and, and assign them to the war in Vietnam. There are all these after effects of the, of the population surge of this cohort of people who are all in the same range moving through the United States population collectively. And now one of the reasons that we're seeing the, the turmoil that we're seeing in this moment is that all of these baby boomers are now reaching retirement age. Most retirees at this point are baby boomers. The peak year for births in the baby boom was 1957. Take 1957, add 65 years, and you get 2022. So we are right at this phase in which baby boomers are retiring, are entering the senior phases of their lives, and we are once again as a nation having to accommodate that, even as we also have this larger, younger population that's competing for resources. You don't go into this in your book, Philip, but when you noted that there was this group during the Vietnam War era that was ripe for sending into the military, the usual explanation for our increasing military involvement in Southeast Asia was to fight communism. But after reading what you wrote, I wondered, was this a way of dealing with too many people for not enough jobs in the United States? What do you think about that? I don't think it's safe to say that the entire Vietnam conflict was a function of that, right? I mean, the Vietnam conflict obviously began in the 1960s in earnest and before we really started to see people reach that age range to a large extent. It definitely was the case, though, that the, the war was facilitated by having all these young people. But, of course, it was also hampered by the fact there were so many young people. We saw this, em this emergent surge of reaction against the war, a reaction against the draft. I think it is probably more the case that the Vietnam War was ended because the baby boom was so populous than it was fostered because the baby boom was so populous. We hear a lot about different gens, generations these days, and it can be very confusing. Could you spend just a moment talking about the various generations, starting with the one just preceding the baby boomer generation? The important thing to recognize here is that generations are mostly just made up. They're contrived. They're either marketing ideas or uh, other demographers 
cobbled together groups. But when you talk to the Census Bureau, they only recognize the baby boom as a distinct generation. That's the only one they recognize because there was this distinct demographic marker of this surge in births that other generations didn't see. So I tend to use the definitions that are put together by the Pew Research Center. But this is arbitrary. It's subjective. It's based on what Pew thinks. So we tend to refer to the two generations that preceded the baby boom as first the greatest generation, who are the people that served in World War II, and then the silent generation, who were the the people who were immediately prior to the baby boom, that being Joe Biden, for example, being a member of the silent generation. Then the baby boom, which lasts 46 to 64. Then you have Gen X, of which I am a member, which lasts until about 1980. According to Pew, uh, you have then following that the millennial generation, which lasts to the mid-1990s. And following that, Gen Z, a.k.a. the lockdown generation or the Zoomers. One of the things that that is revealing about generations is the fact that we don't have a set way of even naming the generations. So we're right now in this period where we've all sort of agreed that the millennials, we're going to call them millennials, uh, but we don't have a name for Gen Z yet, and it's probably not going to be Gen Z over the long term, right? It's because we all just sort of reach a general consensus. It's all subjective when this starts and what we call them. So that's the general order in which we consider the generations. But again, only the baby boom generation has this demographic uniqueness that makes it a defined generation according to the Census Bureau. Let's go back to what you were talking about a moment ago about the need for all of this infrastructure to happen There is a large segment of the population that some call Make America Great Again, and they're usually thought of as referring to the 1950s as this wonderful period of time. And one of the things about that period was it was financially, money was just easy to come by. And now we're also having this big controversy about whether to invest in infrastructure or not. Do you have any comments in in comparing those two eras and how much easier it was to get building done, for example, in the 50s than now? The baby boom generation overlapped with and fed on this this broad sense of optimism in the United States in the immediate post-war era. And there were a lot of reasons for that optimism. We just won World War II, which was obviously a huge conflict. Our economy was able to thrive in part because the economies in in most of Western Europe have been badly damaged by the war. We we had to spend heavily to invest in new industry and manufacturing as part of the war effort that then helped carry over and continue our economic boom. So we were really well positioned after World War II. And that economic boom then contributed to the baby boom because people felt confident. They're like, you know, we're making, you know, we we can grow our family out. We we make a good salary and, and, you know, all these sort of standard tropes that we have about what it means to be a a middle class suburban family really emerged from the baby boom. So yeah, I mean, that lasted until the the 1960s, 1970s, at which point, obviously, the the baby boom was ending. But yes, it it sits in stark contrast to today. And over the course of the past 20 years or so, the millennial generation, which is almost as big as the baby boom generation, albeit a much smaller percentage of population because the baby boom was so big, the millennial generation is now competing for resources with the baby boom generation. It is there has been this broad pushback against the sort of government spending that was very common in the mid 20th century based on political partisanship often. But the effect of it and when we talk about it through the lens of generations is that we have a lot of millennial generation members who are at an age now where they're having kids and they need to think about school funding and they need to think about pre-K program and they need to think about the various things that the baby boomers went through 40, 50 years ago. But at the same time, we have, as I mentioned, this huge surge in baby boomers entering retirement age where they need to start thinking about seniors living and housing and things along those lines. So the baby boom, A, 
has been used to being the center of attention and power basically since inception, since the mid-1940s, now having to compete with this younger generation, which it's not used to. And then you also have the younger generation, which is competing for government resources against this very powerful older generation. And so it is not only the case that the baby boom generation was advantaged by the strength of the economy and by political strength when it first emerged in the 1950s and 1960s. It is also the case that the millennial generation is disadvantaged by those same things. My understanding is that the millennials either are overtaking or have already overtaken the remaining baby boomers in the population now. But this is not because the birth rate necessarily went up during that period of 1965 to 1980-ish. How does one account for this? Uh, People die. Right. I mean, the, the the period you just you just mentioned is Gen X. We're talking about millennials, so like 1980 to the mid 1990s. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's yes. fine. It's fine. Um, and so the millennial generation, you're right, is now more populous. Again, using the Pew definition, they're more populous than the baby boom generation because baby boomers died and are continuing to die. I mean, this is the natural end of a generation. And I, I don't mean to be flip about it, but but that's the answer. When each group turned 40, though, there were nearly as many millennials when they started turning 40 as there were baby boomers when they started turning 40. But again, because the baby boomers were this new, huge generation relative to the older and smaller population in the United States, they had more clout than millennials do at this point. What role then has the change in immigration that occurred in the mid-1960s had on generations? This is an important point. So the, if people probably don't necessarily recall this, but about a century ago, there were new restrictions placed on immigration in the United States in part as a backlash against Eastern and Southern Europeans, people from Asia who were seen as undesirable. So there are new restrictions placed on immigration that weren't lifted until after the baby boom. And so the baby boom itself is actually much more densely white and less immigrant heavy than both prior and subsequent generations, which I think colors a lot of the ways that the baby boom looks at uh, American politics. That said, the boom itself contains tens of millions of people. It's pretty broadly, it's pretty evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. So it's, you know, that's not meant to impugn all baby boomers generally. But it is a much wider generation. One of the interesting things about the baby boom is it actually got less white over time because you had this loosening of immigration laws in the mid-1960s uh, that then meant you had a lot of people who were born during the baby boom years who moved to the United States. They weren't part of the U.S. baby boom, but they were baby boomer aged. And so the baby boom, looking just at people who were born in that age range, actually got less densely white over time, but it is still much more densely white than subsequent generations. That brings up the whole issue of race, which, oh, brother. (laughs) One of the quotes, it's uh, something about the 50-year cycle of, oh, there it is, the 50 years of racial radicalization cycle since 1970 that Ian Haney Lopez talks about. Let's go into that because I'm of an age where I can remember quite a bit of the civil rights struggle as it was happening. And I sure wanted to think like, okay, we got that over with. Now we can, you know, just be a nice, happy, racially diverse and celebrating our diversity spirit. And boy, is that ever naive of me. Uh, I still kind of hope that. And this is one of the really stark differences that you point out in your book between the generations. Would you take it from there, please, and expand on that? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we saw is it was absolutely the case that the baby boom and older Americans were very heavily invested in ending the segregated discrimination that we saw uh, in a lot of the United States in the 1950s and, and earlier. 
the 1960s era really helped bring that to an end. But that was overt racism against black Americans in particular. That was the overt whites only signs on the drinking fountains and so on and so forth. And one of the things that has become apparent over time, even as much as people are are inclined to doubt it or be skeptical of it, is that a lot of the racism against black Americans that was very overt at the time became more subtextual, that that it became embedded in systems that disadvantaged black Americans, systems like financial systems in particular, where either explicitly or implicitly the processes worked against black Americans. We saw this really come to the head in 2014, 2013, 2014, with the arrival of the Black Lives Matter movement, which drew a lot of attention to the ways in which criminal justice systems could be aligned to disadvantage black Americans. But it exists in other systems as well. It's extremely hard to argue that that's not the case, that there is no uh, embedded systemic racism. But one of the things that we see is because baby boomers were very actively involved oftentimes or uh, came in the immediate aftermath of this effort to upend obvious and explicit racism, that there was sort of this assumption that racism was gone, that, that when we talk about things like systems working against black people out of sight, working behind the scenes against black people and other people of color, that those things aren't real racism, that they don't really count, that they are not the clan burning across on a lawn. They're they're something different and ergo not racism. And it's, you know, times opportunistic to say that. But one of the things that we see in terms of the backlash, I shouldn't say backlash, but really the dispute over how racism manifests these days is we see an older generation of Americans, which is very heavily white, as just mentioned, that doesn't really see racism as as being manifested in that way. And so we see some pushback against the idea that racism exists in systems and exists out of sight that undergirds a lot of the political debate that we have in this moment. And it brings up the question of just who is an American. I mean, this is being overtly posited these days, and it's affecting the politics quite drastically. And in addition, your book educated me about, I don't know if it's true to say that people of African American descent are a smaller and smaller portion of the United States, but there are certainly other races and ethnicities that are increasing. And I'm thinking of Asians and South Asians and the violence that seems to be increasing against non-white groups. Talk about that. One of the things that I realized as I was writing the book is that when we talk about racial issues in the 1960s and 1970s, we're talking about black and white, that black versus white has long been the dividing line in American culture. But once we loosened immigration laws in the mid-1960s, we started to see this big influx of immigrants from Asia, from Central America, from Mexico. And so the composition of America's non-white population started to shift and started to become more heavily Hispanic in particular. Also Indian, also other Asian populations, certainly uh, Central American, that we started to see these changes in what the non-white population looked like. And so it is actually fairly consistent. The black population has been a fairly consistent percentage of the population over time. And it is an increase in other non-white groups that has has taken up more of the population and therefore decreased the percentage of the population that is non-Hispanic white. And that, you know, that definition by itself deserves about 45 asterisks. But yes, this has been a change. And so when Americans, when a lot of Americans, particularly baby boom Americans, think about what racism looks like, they tend to think about it as being black versus white because that's how it's always been framed, because that was the racial divide that exists in the United States over the course of the past 30 years in particular. That's simply not the case anymore. Race in America is much more variegated than that. And I think under recognized by a lot of Americans. 
You address an issue that, well, quite a few issues that are sticky, but this one of just what is white anymore, I don't even know how to begin to ask about this. You spend quite a bit of time in your book, Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. And I note that historically, from the earliest days of the United States, the question of who is white has been really shifting. I mean, Benjamin Franklin didn't even want to include Germans as whites, right? And now we have a former president talking about, oh, we should only have the Nordic people immigrating. And it's a matter both of self-perception, how people see themselves as well as how other people see them. So please begin, first of all, by distinguishing between race and ethnicity and how this dynamic has been changing over the last 50 years or so. The important way to think about race in the United States is that most Americans spend little time thinking about race, either because it's very apparent to them or because it just doesn't come up. Uh, you know, white Americans in particular spend very little time thinking about race because there's no reason for them to think about race because they aren't subjected to the same systems of, of discrimination, so on and so forth, that brings race to the forefront of their daily experiences. When we talk about race and particularly the measurement of race, we're really talking about when people are asked, when they're prompted by government forms to say, oh, what is your race? That's the point at which most white Americans are confronted with having to identify their race, not that it's particularly troubling for them. Right? They just check white. But the federal government, since the introduction, since there was really a, a push in the 19, late 1960s among Hispanic Americans to include Hispanic as a differentiated racial identity by the Census Bureau in order to be able to track where Hispanic Americans lived and potentially provide systems to, to, to bolster Hispanic Americans. But the way in which the federal government differentiated that was by assigning Hispanic as an ethnicity and not a race. And so you were, if you've ever filled out a government form in the past 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, you have been asked to pick your race and then to dis identify whether or not you're Hispanic. This means that when we talk about whites in the United States, we are, from a formal perspective, talking about white non-Hispanics. This is not really how most people really understand race. And there's been a push by the Census Bureau to change that so that Hispanic is just included among the racial identities. In part because, you know, race is also something that is a construct of the way that we assign and, and, and record our own identities. A really good example of this comes from the Census Bureau itself. 2010 and prior, they had a form you could, you know, identify your race. And then there was a box that you could also check that say other and you could write in whatever you wanted. You could say, well, I'm white, but, you know, my dad came from Cuba and my mother came from India. Right. You could you could write that down. The problem was that they didn't really have the technology in order to be able to record a lot of that. So they only pulled a certain subset of the characters, like the first 10 characters of that. So you might get like Cuba. But what happened is in 2020, they expanded the amount of information that they took in. And all of a sudden they took in something like I don't remember how many characters it is, but dozens of characters from that. So all of a sudden you get this much more nuanced ability of people to identify what their racial composition is. And, and the result is we saw this huge surge in the number of Americans who were identified as white and some other race. It's not because all of a sudden Americans were more racially diverse than they were 10 years ago. It's just that they could record it better, that they, the process for recording race better captured America's existing diversity. And so when we think about race, which we a lot of us don't generally do, like my wife is uh, Hispanic and she is Native American and she is white. And how she identifies herself depends on context. So, you know, it doesn't matter. She doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about, like, what is my racial identity? Sometimes she's asked, though, and she has to, sort, she has to parse that out. 
And so this is this is a very familiar thing to Americans. And the Census Bureau is just starting to get into this age where it can better capture the complexity that exists. The problem, though, is that their research and their projections about what race is going to look like tend to fall into this very oversimplified sense of what race is and how race is measured that I think disadvantages the political conversation about race. Last Friday, March 17th, a U.S. government advisory panel released a report recommending that the U.S. Census create a new MENA, which is Middle Eastern and North African category, to accurately reflect the rich diversity of the country. Let me just very quickly on that. That was actually a proposal that was supposed to be implemented during the Trump administration. The Trump administration spiked it. Uh, it's not really clear why. I talk about this a bit in the book. But yeah, there was this effort to try and streamline racial categorization. There's some speculation the Trump administration mixed because they were worried it would further eat into the percentage of Americans that identified as white. So that's still sort of a mystery sitting out there, but it is something addressed in the book. I just want to make a, an aside that it doesn't really matter about race and stuff like that. But unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in violence against Asians in particular. And so in that sense, it does matter. People are being harmed because of what their physical racial characteristics are. And that seems to be increasing. Well, no, you're right. I mean, obviously, that's the flip side of it, which you mentioned. There's people self-identification and there's the way they're perceived by the outside world. One of my favorite graphs in the book looks at the results of a, a survey that was conducted in the 1980s in which they asked Hispanics to identify their own race. And not only was that recorded, they said whether they're white or black or something else, but it was also recorded by the person who was doing the survey, how they observe the person's skin color. And so there's this chart that shows that even people who are flagged by the observers as having the darkest skin tone or often identify themselves as white. But of course, we understand in America that the way in which someone's, you know, what's called phenotype, that the person's skin color absolutely affects how they are presented. And we even see this within the Hispanic community, that darker skinned Hispanics are more likely to experience discrimination than our lighter skinned Hispanics. But that said, we see very starkly at times this difference between how people identify their own race and how race is imposed upon them by outside observers, which, of course, is a very important consideration. We're speaking with Washington Post columnist Philip Bump. His book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. In the book, you mention the great sorting, and that is basically people moving from places to places. And one of the places that's gotten quite a bit of coverage over the last 10 years or so is the villages in Florida. Talk about that phenomenon, please. Yeah, so the villages is this, it's a series of communities just northwest of Orlando in which basically back in the 1980s, they started building little housing complexes. What, what differentiates the villages from other such areas is that they have these town centers that are sort of after the fact constructions of little towns. And then the housing developments around them are, are theoretically like the suburbs, but it's all done backwards. You built the, the suburbs first, if you will, and then the, the urban centers later. It's, it's a fascinating place. It, they create these towns and give them these fake backstories and fake histories of how the town came to be and what its importance is. That's all. Yeah, and they have like fake historical markers on the walls. It's really quite intriguing. But the point is that it is this place where people can go and collectively experience a style of living in America 
that isn't really true to how Americans ever really lived, right? I mean, it, it's it's sort of this idealized sense of what America could be, where I live in the suburbs and I drive into town and I go, you know, there's dancing every night and I get, get a beer and I have dinner at the TJ Fridays or whatever it happens to be, and I drive back out to my home in my in my golf cart, right? It is it's this it is called Disneyland for adults, which is in part because it's close to Orlando, but it's in part just because it really is it's play acting in the same way that Main Street USA is play acting what a village in the in the United States looks like. It's play acting what a community can look like. It is a, a sharply conservative place, uh, I think perhaps unexpectedly given that description, that voted heavily for Donald Trump in both 16 and 20, but really is also one way in which people are, A, benefiting from the surge in older Americans, that this has been a boom in part because there's so many older Americans now, but also, B, it really manifests one way in which we're going to have to rethink what housing looks like in the future because the percentage of older Americans is growing so quickly. Well, let's go into that very specific issue issue of housing. I think some people might think, and I, I am probably among them, that we're currently in a dearth of housing and we won't go into what Ronald Reagan did with the um, HUD in the early 80s that brought us to this place, but we're here now. And so one assumes that as the baby boomers age and leave this planet, there will be a lot of houses, but it's not that simple, is it? It's not that simple for a variety of reasons. The first is you're absolutely right that the limits on construction and new housing have very negatively affected housing prices in part that is intentional, uh, that a lot of people who are making decisions about how much housing should be built have a vested interest in keeping housing prices high, which is often individual older Americans who own homes and see those homes as a storehouse of value for retirement and are therefore disincentivized to try and build new housing and bring the housing prices down. But that said, it's also not clear what happens once baby boomers get older and start dying or selling their homes and moving into retirement facilities. It's not clear if younger Americans want to buy the same sorts of homes that baby boomers currently hold out in the suburbs. It's not likely there's going to be a huge glut of housing on the market, in part because the baby boom is going to fade out a lot more slowly than it arose. Just that's the nature of human existence. It's also not clear whether baby boomers are going to want to move out of their houses and move into senior care facilities. One of the factors about the baby boom, the most important factor about the baby boom is it's huge. It is a massive, massive population. And so even if you have a set percentage of the population, which is always just going to stay in their homes for the rest of their existences, any percentage of the baby boom is going to be larger than any prior percentage of Americans just because the baby boom is so big. And so it's not really clear the extent to which a lot of those homes will be freed up either. That was one of my questions when I first started the book is, will the end of the baby boom mean that all of a sudden housing prices are going to plunge because there are going to be so many houses on the market, and the short answer is it seems very unlikely that that would be the case. But, Philip, isn't there a tendency for as people age and they have houses that were larger because they had children downsize? And shouldn't that make a significant dent for then younger families being able to take those houses? It should, yeah. I mean, and we'll certainly see some 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 examples of that. And I'm sure we already have, in fact. But the point is that if we talk about, you know, let's say that five percent of people just stay in their homes until they die, right? In in a population of older Americans that was ten percent of the population thirty years ago, 
we're talking about a, a relatively small sliver. But when we're talking about a population that's 20 percent of the population, the number of people doing that are twice as large. And therefore, the number of houses that are being lived in is twice as many, as was the case previously. All, my point is simply to say that, yes, you are right, that there will be some of that, that there is some question about whether millennials want to live in the same types of homes, which remains to be determined. But secondarily, that it is, it is also the case that in addition to there being more houses on the market because more people are retiring or moving to senior centers, there will also be more homes that are still occupied by people who decide to live out their lives in, in their homes. And it's just there are so many different entangled ways of considering how housing might evolve that it's really hard to predict with much accuracy about where that might go. And also there is the issue of the geographical distribution that the Rust Belt, the northern areas that were industrial are kind of getting left behind just in general, regardless of the housing situation. So that brings up the post-boomer cultural era, which you say has arrived, and you've gotten on to one of the attributes, and that is that it's a more urban cohort. Could you expand on that, please? Yeah, I mean, it's a slightly more urban cohort. There are a lot of ways in which the baby boom is different than the younger generations. We, we talked about the fact that it's, it's wider. It's obviously older, definitionally. It is less likely to have attended college. It is more likely to participate in institutions than our younger Americans. The younger Americans are much more likely to be immigrants or the children of immigrants. Younger Americans are also more likely to live in cities, but not dramatically so. Baby boomers still often live in cities. But one of the differentiators we see here is that because younger Americans are more likely to be going to or have gone to college, they end up living in the cities where colleges are often located. And so those two things also correlate. But you can also see, as I described, the difference between older and young Americans. You can see how a lot of the factors that are common for younger Americans overlap with democratic partisanship. College education, they're less likely to go to church, they're less likely to be religious, they're more likely to live in cities, they're more likely to be people of color. All of those things correlate to, de- to being more democratic. Uh, and as a result, I think we see them this massive partisan gap among younger Americans in terms of who they support politically. And you do draw a connection between the religious adherence of uh, more baby boomers and as well as the college degree in our current politics. Would you expand on that, please? There is this assumption that there is a liberalizing effect of college, that you go to college and then your college instructors teach you to be a liberal, then you become a liberal. That's not really demonstrated in research. There are lots of other confounding factors which may play a role here, including, for example, the fact that you're moving to cities. You know, it may be the case that you take a young kid, like I myself went to high school in Northeast Ohio in a small town called Howland uh, and ended up going to Ohio State. I mean, taking me from that small ruralish suburban rural community and putting me in the city of Columbus, Ohio, introduces me to a new, I mean, I'd come from Rochester, New York, so this wasn't new to me, but theoretically, you know, you can see how that changes someone's perspective and introduces them to, to different types of people, more people of color, gay people, things along those lines. Uh, that, that may itself be the liberalizing factor. But that said, as I was doing research for the book, Ian Annie Lopez, who you referred to earlier, pointed out that this, this idea that there's a liberalization effect in college doesn't hold universally. And if, for example, white evangelical Americans who end up going to college tend to come out of college just as conservative as they went in. And so it may not be the case at all that there is a real liberalizing factor there, that there is a sense that if you come into it with a certain perspective, that you may come out of it with a certain perspective as well. 
And then, of course, this overlaps with religion, because if you're not particularly religious, then you tend to be less conservative in the first place. Since your book deals with the future of power in America, we're seeing some pretty intense power moves, most notably in Florida, but not only in Florida. Texas just took control of all of their schools. Books are being banned in libraries and schools. Ron DeSantis has taken over New College in Florida and asserting all sorts of power. So the acknowledgement that education is a really powerful political force seems to be being made, but in a very reactionary way. Do you have any comments on this as a phenomenon, not only in those two states, but in Red America? It is a useful target, right? People have this perception of college as being this place that, you know, part because of the baby boom, <laughs> that, you know, this is where all the hippies emerged and, you know, UC Berkeley and whatever, that there is a, a perception that college education is responsible for the fact that young people are much more liberal, when in fact it may be the opposite. The young people are much more liberal and therefore it gives the sense that colleges are, are providing a liberal education. Again, there's not a lot of research to show which direction the arrow points there. And I think it's very fair to assume, based on all the other characteristics that we see from younger Americans, that they are liberal before they get into college, or at least prone to becoming liberal before they go into college. And this is a useful scapegoat for people like Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis wants to run for the Republican nomination in 2024. He wants to show that he is battling the new liberal America, which when we talk about what that means, you know, we're often talking about old versus young, older Americans being more conservative than young Americans. And older Americans who, again, are less likely to have gone to college are generally, I think it's safe to say it is safe to say that a lot of them are going to be sympathetic to Ron DeSantis's idea that it is a function of college education and these these liberal teachers who are teaching kids to be liberals. When in fact, given their druthers, young people would absolutely be just as conservative as they are, which I don't think is fair. So I, I just think I think fundamentally it's an issue of scapegoating as Ron DeSantis looks 2024. I would note that Ron DeSantis was born in 1978, so he is Gen X. You end your book with a chapter called Getting From Here to Wherever There Is, and I applaud your use of several phrases. You start with the Laboratory for Democracy, quoting Louis Brandeis in the 1920s, and then you talk about laboratories of autocracy, and then there's laboratories of demography, and I would add demagoguery to those thinking of the directions that Ron DeSantis is going. So would you talk about this progression from the 1920s to where we are now, 100 years later, Brandeis is responding to a fascinating case, which I talk a little bit about in the book, in which a, a guy in Oklahoma, if I'm remembering off the top of my head, wanted to sell ice. The state had reached a deal for selling ice with this other firm. And so he sued, and, and Brandeis was objecting to the Supreme Court's decision, saying that it should be up to states to decide what's best for the states, that they were these laboratories of democracy that can make decisions about what they thought was best for themselves. The idea that states knew what was best for states has been compelling in both positive and negative ways. It was the argument behind states' rights movement that was a backlash to the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s, that states had the right to say how they wanted to treat black Americans if they wanted to have them vote very wisely. Uh, that was rejected both nationally and in the courts as an argument that you can't simply be discriminatory because that's what your state wants to do. 
But we've seen an extension of that. We saw an extension of that in the wake of the 2020 election in which states tried to say, well, our laws should carry the day and we should have the right to choose who our electors are. And in the case of this lawsuit from Texas in the immediate aftermath of the election, that they should have the right to dictate what other states were doing with their electors. That was very rightfully thrown out, uh, but it was a real sense of how the state's ability to determine their own rules and sort of speak for themselves was a challenge to broader national democracy. When we talk about this, the laboratories of demography, that was really a way of talking about where we expect the United States to go demographically over the course of the next several decades. The Census Bureau projects out until 2060 uh, what it thinks demography will look like. And when you look at those projections, one thing that you see is that the state which looks most to the way that the United States is expected to look in 2060 is Florida, that it is much older, that it's much more Hispanic than the United States is currently, which is what Florida looks like. Now, there are important caveats. A lot of Democrats hear that and they start to get a little nervous. But there are caveats, right? The, the older population of Florida today is much wider than the older population will be in the United States in 2060. And also the Hispanic population today is much more heavily Cuban-American and conservative than the national population will be in 2060. But still, it is a reminder that, you know, when we look at how demography affects politics at the state level, even now, that there's not really a one size fits all. That states like Florida and Texas, which are very heavily non-white, are still places that Republicans do well in. And that states that are very white, like Vermont, are places the Democrats do very well in. And that the idea that demography is destiny doesn't really hold up very well right now. I mean, obviously, there are correlations, but that there are certainly a lot of qualifiers that deserve to be applied both now and in the future. I would also note that the Dobbs decision denying a federal right to federal constitutional right to choose what to do with one's body uh, and refer that to the states was a state's rights issue. And coming before the Supreme Court will be the state legislature controlling elections decision. I can hardly wait for that one. Intriguing is the problem of trying to predict anything 40 or 60 years in advance. And, of course, that's what you're sort of trying to do, Philip. Mm -hmm. But remind our listeners of how fraught that exercise can be. Yeah, I think it's fairly simple. I mean, the example I like to use is if I'd asked you on November 2019 what the most important issues were going to be in the 2020 election, the odds that you said a global pandemic and, you know, massive demonstrations in the streets of, of American cities, the odds were low that that was going to be a response. Those weren't simply things that were foreseen. I use the example in the book. I went back in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, 1950. It was building a new city hall, and they, they asked a bunch of civic and national leaders to write letters uh, a century in the future, anticipating what Birmingham would look like in the year 2050. And I found this letter from the guy who's the commissioner of public safety in the city at that time. And it's just very like, oh, we've done all these things. We made these investments and these things. And, you know, in the future, you're probably going to have to have jet planes that can catch criminals because they can fly all over. You know, it's a very 1950s thing. But then you realize the guy who wrote the letter was Bull Connor, who became in over the course of the next two decades after that for his crackdown on blacks trying to vote in the state of Alabama. And it's a real reminder that our ability to see into the future, to reflect what the future is colored both by what we want to see and by the fact that we don't know much about what's likely to happen. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the book does try to look at 2060, but I try to do so with all the, the humility that is deserved about the inability of Americans or, or people in general to, to accurately predict the future. It's quite fascinating uh, what you have uncovered, and I learned a great deal from your book. One of the things that you're looking at things numerically shows is 
I'm referring to your analysis of different segments of the population by counties, an example of which is 25% of the U.S. population is in only 35 counties. And 25% of white population is in 62 counties. 25% of blacks are in 18 counties. 25% of Latinos are in nine counties. And this really blew my mind. 25% of people in college degrees are in only 28 counties. This is a vast country, Philip. How can one explain this sort of thing? Most counties don't have a lot of people living in them, right? I mean, that's 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 it. And when we look at those, those infamous maps of presidential election results, like Donald Trump would hold up this map of the 2016 results and be like, look at all the red. And, of course, it would be these gigantic counties in Wyoming that have two people living in them to be hyperbolic. This is the divide that there that a lot of the American population lives in cities. The cities are much more compact and much more densely populated than our rural areas. But the cities, this is a huge country. There's a lot of open area in which not a lot of people live. And so when we talk about this sorting of people into like-minded communities and like-minded cities, in part, that's simply a function of people moving from these more sparsely populated areas into areas that are more densely populated. Immigration is and has for some time been a very charged issue. But you point out that because of demographics and the aging of the baby boomers and the current birth rate, you make a case that we actually need immigrants. Would you expand on that, please? Yeah, so one of the questions about the future of the United States is the extent to which the older American population, which is going to need a lot of resources and a lot of, you know, medical care costs and housing costs and funding from programs like Medicare and Social Security, if there's going to be enough people paying into the system to take care of that over the course of the past 40 years or so until about a decade ago, the ratio between working age Americans and older Americans was pretty consistent. It's recently started to skyrocket uh, as there are more older Americans and relatively fewer working age Americans. Uh, you talk to demographers, and one of the things they point to is since fertility rates aren't increasing, that we need to have more immigrants. That we need to bring more people into the country who can, who can work and pay taxes and contribute to the system. It is likely that at some point in time we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. We're going to have to figure out if that's if that is something that we can increase immigration in a way that brings more people to the United States in order to do those jobs. Otherwise, the ratio will remain out of whack, and it's not clear what the repercussions of that would be. Do you see the current resistance, especially as elections are around and for representatives, that's every two years, immigration is a subject that is usually used offensively against the other party. What's your stance on immigration? And there's very little discussion about the positive benefits of immigration, even though we are a country of immigrants for the most part. Do you see that, that that's going to change or, or, or how do you see that? No, I don't think that's likely to change. And it, one of the reasons is that while there are people who hold both sides of the, of the perspective that they think more immigration is good or they think more immigration is bad, it is generally speaking the case that the people who think more immigration is bad are much more energized on blocking immigration than are people who think it is good, energized on supporting it. And particularly now that that overlaps with this very explicitly stoked push by Donald Trump and others on the right to cast immigration as a negative that is damaging the United States. 
that increases the political cost of supporting immigration and increases the energy dedicated to opposing immigration. You see a lot of Democrats who say, yes, I support immigration. But then you see President Biden understanding that there is more political downside to supporting immigration than there is upside and reinforcing some of the policies that Donald Trump had had on immigration because he doesn't want to incur the political cost and, 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 and stoke the backlash that would come from people who are opponents to immigration. This is, this is the situation at the moment. And in part, that's rooted in the fact that this older generation of Americans is much more heavily white has a much smaller percentage of it that is immigrant or the children of immigrants. And uh, this is this is the moment that we're in. And uh, the question is, how long does that moment last? Can a younger, different generation that is more open to immigration in particular help change immigration policy over the short or medium term in a way that actually helps us address this ratio that demographers worry about? Thank you very much for joining us today on Forthright Radio, Philip Bump. You bet. Thank you so much. You have just heard a conversation with Washington Post columnist Philip Bump about his book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, published by Viking. Now, excerpts from a conversation with former Congresswoman Pat Schroeder from 2014 at the Library of Congress. At the age of 31 and the mother of two young children, she defeated an incumbent Republican congressman in 1972 and then was re-elected 11 more times before leaving Congress in 1997, disgusted with the obstructionist shenanigans of Newt Gingrich. Born in 1940, she would be designated as being in the silent generation, but she was anything but silent. It was she who designated Ronald Reagan as the Teflon president. She served on the House Armed Services Committee, and you may be surprised by what she has to say about NATO. The final excerpt is from the end of an hour-long conversation, responding to a question from the audience asking, if she were president, what five things would she do immediately? She died on March 13th, 2023, at the age of 82. Well, first of all, I came during the Vietnam War, so the whole place smelled like tear gas. Mm. There were huge demonstrations. It was the Nixon inaugural, and we would go through the tunnels, and they were full of National Guardsmen uh, staying in there. So I was really like, what have I done to my life? And I remember walking into my office, and there were six bags of mail (laughs) all on the bombings and what was going on. So people forget how that era was. Members of Congress would say to me, are you a fluke? They couldn't really quite believe that I had gotten elected. And the speaker kept trying to swear in Jim. And he kept saying, no, it's her. It's her. (laughs) And everywhere I would go and we would have to line up, they would always come and say to me, no, no, you don't understand. The member goes in front of you. And I would say, no, I'm the member. And they said, no, 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 I know you're a member of the human race, but, you know, no, no, no. I mean, we're, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, it, but you, you did try to get on armed services, the armed services try to committee. Get on armed was services. that related to the district or? Because I was a pilot and I thought nobody ever talked to women and children about being defended. I felt that everything that I wanted money for, they were going to say we don't have money for it because it's all going into defense. The immense expense is mainly in defense. I won't sing, but you know the deal. So I should be there and I should look at it. And and I also felt very strongly about military families. Nobody ever talked about them. They only talked about hardware. So I thought, well, this is a wonderful idea. It's time we have a woman. That was not exactly what the chairman thought. 
The chairman was F. Eddie Bear from Nolens, Louisiana, and what we called it was a, a boll weevil back then. And there was also no African Americans on. And Ron Dellums also wanted to get on. So we were both vetoed by the chairman, and they had never overridden a veto of a chairman before. And they overrode it and put the two of us on. So the two of us walk in the first day, and we're thinking we're pretty smart. You know, we're now on the Armed Services Committee. And the chairman is going off about this is the worst thing that ever happened and this is terrible and the Congress has now been ruined and why, blah, 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 blah. But his only power that he has left, he says, is how many chairs are at the dais and these two people are only worth half of the rest of you so they get one chair. So we sat cheek to cheek, got to be quite good friends right. and wonderful Barney Frank used to go around introducing me that it was the only half-assed thing that I ever did in Congress. <laughs> but I... One of the things that I worked very hard on and I never got done was safe motherhood. This is the 100th anniversary of Margaret Sanger having started contraceptive clinics on the basis that that was for preventive health for women. And here we are 100 years later and the Supreme Court's still deciding, hmm, is contraception really preventive health? Meanwhile, in the last 25 years, according to UNICEF, maternal deaths have doubled in America. And we are 50th universally, right below Serbia. And we don't talk about the maternal health issues. People in America watched Downton Abbey and watched one of the characters die of preeclampsia. And people would say to me, well, what's that? Do we have that in America? I said, yeah, we got that in America. I know three people who had it. Oh, really? Do we do any research? No, because our image is everybody's a safe motherhood here. And women's issues I found particularly difficult. Family issues, very difficult. And I think it's still that way because I think Congress thinks of itself as the most important and powerful legislature and the most important capital, which is true. And so we only deal with important issues. And that's not family and that's not female. I'm terribly, terribly concerned about the incredible pay inequity. Hallelujah for Seattle and $15 an hour. Two-thirds of the minimum wage workers are women. The lowest paid workers in America are single women with children. Do you think that child poverty might be derivative of that? So those things all, I think, are terribly important. I think it's terribly important to get education back on keel. We're so missing out. I mean, you go to India We may have MIT. You want to know how many MIT equivalents they've got? And China and, you know, they're out there. And a generation from now, we're going to really start seeing tremendous problems with this if we don't get focused on it. And if you look at most of our universities, if you want math and science, guess what? It's going to be a foreign student teaching it. I mean, really? Don't we have anybody left in America that can teach math and science in America? Tremendous neglect there. Those, Those would be two very key things. Three... I am obsessed about burden sharing, totally obsessed about burden sharing. When Eisenhower created NATO, he said, if we've still got troops in Europe 10 years from now, we have failed. Hello. You want that? We got 120 countries we got troops in. What are we thinking? And, you know, there was a wonderful cartoon in the UK paper where these people are coming out of their house, the next door house is in fire. And they said, when are the Americans going to come and fix this? You know, I am more than willing to do our part, but our part's not 99.9%. I used to rant and rave about this all the time, and, and 
if you put the European countries together, they have more people than we do and they have a higher GDP if you put them all together in the European Union. And what do they do? We have, I mean, the Belgians send chocolates and someone else sends bikes and someone else sends some films. It's like, come on, people. And now we have a united front. Baloney. I mean, they, somebody has really got to say it is grow-up time. These things are in your backyard. I mean, I, I look at the Ukraine. It's like, it's pretty close to you. Serbia and all of that was kind of close to them. And yet we keep coming in. So I would be mad of burden sharing and they would hate it. I used to get thrown out of a lot of NATO meetings because it was like the skunk at the garden party. It's like, no, no, no. And our eyeguards are like, no, no, no. This is what we do. We're America. You know, we're here. We're here to save you. You know, the cavalry. The environment. I realize most human beings can't think beyond two generations. We really need to be more thoughtful about that. And I, I, I salute the president for trying to take it on. And of course, the coal states will scream bloody murder and everybody else will scream bloody murder. And you may have to pay another penny if you have to use natural gas versus in coal and, and overfishing of the, the seas and everything else. We've really got to think about that. I mean, the Native Americans had it right. We don't own this. We, we're, we're kind of borrowing it for a while and turning it over. So that would be one. And finally, of course, I, uh, diversity and all of that, I think is terribly important in our background. But I am so depressed about the fact that women have still not come up to the level that they should. And we have not dealt with families very equally. And I think what's going to happen is more and more people are going to decide not to have a family women's and family issues and they shouldn't be women's issues in every other country they're considered both men and women's issues in this country they're on the women's pages it's what do the women want now daycare well you know men want daycare too and we've got to bring that whole family thing together we got to redefine family is wherever you go at night and they let you in and then we got to figure out how we because those are the basic building blocks of this society and you put those building blocks together and then you put the society on it. Well, if they're crumbling, we're crumbling. So, I mean, those would be my five. Okay. And I don't think I'll get elected on that platform. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Schroeder, Presente. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media.